So tonight we continue on in our journey in the book of First Timothy. And uh, I don't know, I, I know, I know, all of you have probably heard the phrase at some point, throw the baby out the bathwater, right? Like that's an idiom that's used, right? Throw the baby out the bathwater. All right, so for those, just in case you've never heard such an idiom as throw the baby out the bathwater, um, to throw the baby out the bathwater <laughs> is when there are two things that are connected. What was that? Oh yeah, you don't want to do it, yeah. That's right. That. Oh, now I get it. It makes so much more sense. I've changed my message really quick. Okay. All right. So you don't want to throw the baby out the bathwater, according to Austin in the back. Okay. So the concept is that when there are two things that are connected and intertwined, one is a good thing, one is a bad thing, what you don't want to do is you don't want to toss out the good thing as you're trying to rid of the bad thing. Okay, so for example, if you are, uh, you're driving your car and your, uh, and your um, oil change light comes on in your car, you don't go, oh, that's it. And he's an oil change. I'm done with this piece of trash. You pull over to the side of the road, you get out and you walk home, right? That would be throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? You kind of need your vehicle, especially here in central Florida when everything's so far away from each other. Um, <laughs> You, you know, like, so you don't want to do, uh, you don't want to throw out the good along with the bad. Now, I heard that ever since I was a kid, but it really came to life when we had Abby, um, our daughter. And for the first year of her life, poopy baths were a real possibility on any given night. Uh, and what would happen is I would be... Um, I would be giving her a bath in, the, in this little tub that we had in the kitchen because she was too little for a real bathtub. So she'd be in this little tiny bathtub in the, in the kind of like in the sink. And, uh, and my TV would be there. So if Allie was at work, I'd be watching a football game while giving Abby a bath. And I'd be looking, I, it's like holding on to her head. She was good. Um, and, uh, and, but then sometimes like I would, I'd be watching the game and all of a sudden I look down and all of a sudden my once clean baby that I just cleaned is now covered in feces. And, and then you have to like take her out, clean her, and then put it, get it all poopy water out, clean water in, re-clean her all, and you just kind of keep going. And it's at that point that I realized if you never want to experience poopy water, you don't have a baby. <laughs> you, you don't experience poopy water, at least, at least I, I don't when I'm taking a bath, unless you have a baby. But the thing is, is that Abby's really cute. And I, I'm really glad we have her around. So she is worth kind of the poopy water that we had to deal with. So I didn't want to throw the baby out with the bath water. Now, in a lot of ways, this has been the experience of many when we think about God's law, his wisdom, his teachings, his commands, his desires in the scriptures. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how divine biblical love is filled with both grace and truth. And see, to reduce or alter or to add to God's law is to ultimately minimize God's law. Unfortunately, within each and every one of us is the opportunity to try to define good and bad on our own terms. And so we do these kinds of things. We minimize the law. We minimize the gospel. And by doing that, we minimize the effects of God's redemptive love in our lives and in the world around us. So we both misuse the law and we have it misused against us or those that we care about. And in doing so, we go, oh, I didn't like that. 
That's poopy bathwater. So we, what if we just don't have that law? Or what if we alter it to match up with kind of what's going on here and then we'll be good? No poopy water, right? It's seeing the poopy water and assuming that no baby is probably the better option. But here's the question. What if the law is actually good? Helpful, important. What if God's unchanging truth is meant to bring about flourishing? What if when we reduce, alter, add to God's law, we don't make things better, but we actually just introduce an entirely new problem to the mix that creates all kinds of different poopy water? See, this is where Paul is going to be getting into and where we're going into in 1 Timothy tonight. So if you want to open up your Bibles, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 1, um, starting in verse, I think, 8. Now, what's been going on so far? If you're first time joining us or you've been out for a bit, uh, Paul is writing this letter to his beloved disciple, like his, his number one go-to right-hand dude. And he is writing to this guy, Timothy, who he has sent to go to one of his favorite churches in the entire world in a place called Ephesus, because there were these false teachers who had entered into their midst and they were bringing all kinds of shenanigans and bad theology along with them. They were living out of arrogant ignorance. They were pursuing both to puff themselves up and we'll find out later in the letter, they're trying to accumulate wealth by adding to the law. They're misusing the law. They're adding to the gospel. And the problem is, is that when you add things to Jesus, you actually end up kicking Jesus out of the equation altogether. And that's what they'd been doing. They created a new good news, a good news that matched up with themselves, a good news that boosted themselves up. They lost the true aim of love. And Paul's desire is that Timothy would bring both grace and truth into their lives out of this heart to see them restored with divine biblical love so that they would stop infecting themselves and the community around them. So Paul is now going to turn his attention to the concept of the law. But it's possible that hearing that, hearing these corrections to the false teachers who had been misusing the law, that they would, that one might think, okay, so misusing the law is a real shot here. Let's avoid that. Let's actually just get rid of the law. Let's not use the law. Let's not talk about it so much. But Paul is going to talk, talk about the law with a biblical understanding of what it is and what it's for and if it's good. And he starts off in verse eight this way. Now we know that. The law is good if one is uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. All right, let's break this down a little bit before we keep going from there. So the first thing that we get from this from Paul is that the law is good. So Paul believes that the law is good. Now, Growing up, I, growing up in the church world, I thought that God's law was about being a perpetual buzzkill for the things I wanted to do in life. He didn't want me or you to enjoy life very much. So therefore, he gave us all these conditions and that are meant to kind of like make sure that we don't get to do the things we want to do. And that's a bummer. 
And then as I continued growing up, I began experiencing others who were misusing God's commands as a means to beat up on others to feel better and more righteous about themselves just to then find out that that was also me. Not ideal. Poopy water. Check out the law then, right? Add to it. Do something with it. But Paul is suggesting here that God's wisdom, his desires, his commands are actually good. Why? Well, first and foremost, the law is good because the lawgiver is good. If God is good, then what he declares to be good is actually good. If God is not actually good, then it doesn't matter what he calls good. But if the lawgiver is good, then what he says is good, is good. Now, we see this in the earliest pages of the scriptures, in the biblical account of creation. This is literally kind of like God's whole thing. He goes into two, he does two things each day of the creation account, creation and affirmation, right? He creates a thing. He says, let there be stars in the sky, plants, vegetation, separating the earth's, the, the earth from the seas, putting fish in the seas and birds in the air and living things on the ground. He creates, 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 but every time he creates, he immediately comes back and, and it says, and he said it was good. Creation, affirmation. Why does he have the authority to affirm it to be good? Because he's the creator of the thing that is good. And because he is good, then he can therefore, like logically, call out what's good and what's not good. Now, I realize that not all of us are probably in the same place where we would all say that God is good. And if that's you, you're in a safe place to talk about it. But see, if you don't believe that God is good, then it's gonna be really hard to believe that his law is good. If you don't believe his law is ultimately good, it's gonna be really hard to maintain a belief that God is good. The law and the lawgiver are pretty intimately attached because when we understand the law and God's wisdom in it, it leads us into an understanding of who he is, his character, his kindness, his care. So according to Paul, the law is good. He goes on to say, if it's used lawfully. See, that's, the, that's where the metaphor of the baby in the bathwater thing starts to break down because the, the baby is kind of just an existing thing, right? And like naturally what's gonna come out of the baby is poop. And sometimes what's, that's gonna happen in the context of the tub. And that's unfortunate, but hey, that's life. But that's not what the law is meant to do. It's not meant to bring us to misuse. It's meant to take us to proper use. But, our improper use is going to lead to poopy water. Poopy water, that's the phrase you're going to get out of this, I bet. All right. If one uses it lawfully, so let's break it down from there, lawfully. That means when something is in accordance with the law, kind of makes sense, right? Or another way to phrase it is within its proper use, the proper way of using a thing. Now, this is an iPad, okay? Within this case, there's an iPad in there, I promise. Okay. Its proper use is pretty varied. You can use it like I'm using it right now for teaching. It can also be used to watch movies, play games, listen to music, books. I can iMessage on there. Can do a lot of different things on an iPad that go along with its proper use. 
An improper use of an iPad would be for me to now stand up here and chuck it at one of your guys' heads, right? Like we would say improper use. In fact, in fact, that might constitute assault, and which is also unlawful to the laws of the land. So it's like an, a double improper use of an iPad. The law has a proper use and also a plethora of improper uses of it. So we got to remember that Paul is writing to Timothy specifically right now regarding false teachers who have been using the law unlawfully. They have been using it in improper use. They have been misusing the law out of their arrogant ignorance, away from love and towards their own self-righteousness. So then Paul continues, verse nine, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. So there's a lot of words right there. So let's break them down. The first thing he says is the just. Now he says, if the, the law isn't for the just. So who are the just? Well, when someone is truly just, Someone is in right relationship with God and right relationship with all people. They do what is right. The trouble is humans never consistently do what is right. So introducing the law into the equation, like the law comes because of human imperfection because of our, our desire to rebel against what God says is good and not good. So then he says the law is for, he gives three couplets. The first is the lawless and the disobedient. Now these two words are the, the polar opposite of the word just, to have justice. They are those who are rebelling against what God says is good and bad. They are those who are disobedient and saying, no, I got this. I'm going to do me. It's going to be all good on my terms. So the law is for those kind of people. It's also for the ungodly and the sinners. Now, these phrases in the scriptures are more often than not related to the way that we relate personally between us and God, the way that people relate to God. They don't have a right relationship with God because our sin before it's against any other person is first and foremost against God and his glory. Then he gives a third one that's super interesting, the unholy and profane. These aren't words that, I mean, not that any of these words are ones that we use all the time, but unholy and profane are probably a little bit outside of the norm, right? Now, these, these are both interesting words. They're what they're meant to invoke in the imagination for Timothy, as well as any others who would read after, is that these are words that are connected in the scriptures to the concept of being in God's presence, or actually being not allowed within God's presence. These are two words that are often used in the book of Leviticus. So this is like a hyperlink towards our imaginations towards the book of Leviticus, where the mega theme of the book of Leviticus is God's holiness, his otherness, the fact that he is set apart. And what his desire was, was for the people of Israel in the Bible, is that they would be a set apart people for himself, that they would be set apart from the brokenness and division and sin of the world, and they would be drawn into his presence as his people. The only problem, the nation of Israel, just like the rest of humanity through all of human history, is unholy, is profane. Now that word profane, let me just hit on that for just a second because it's an interesting one. Um, uh, Profane like profanity. uh, But when you profane something, it's to diminish the name of something. 
Okay, uh, I'll use an example that some of you uh, will will get. Uh, the, the original trilogy of Star Wars movies, okay? Um, th- th- those movies are, I think, m- across the board, most people look at the original trilogy and say, those are pretty good movies. Now, I grew up in the era of the prequel trilogy, and I liked them, and I still do. I'll defend that. I, I realize they're not the best, but I like them. Jar Jar Binks and all, you know? Uh, then Disney bought Lucasfilm and then made the sequel trilogy, now, not, I've, I've yet to meet somebody who defends those ones. In fact, we could even say that in some ways, like I left the theater of the last one feeling like that kind of profaned the name of Star Wars a little bit. Like, like it lessened Star Wars. Like, can we just imagine that didn't happen? I mean, it's a fake story, so we can just say it doesn't happen in my imagination. Like, I don't know how that works, but to profane is to diminish the name of. And so when we have profane, when we profane God, it's that we have made less of his name. And since we are called to bear his image to the world, when we are living in sin and brokenness and lawlessness and all of this, it profanes God's name to the world. So then how is the law good? What does that look like practically? Well, the first thing that the law does is it reveals us God's sense of justice, that he alone has the right to define good and bad on his terms. He gets to define what is broken. And what's so cool though, is that he's just, but he's not just just, he's also merciful. Meaning that he goes out of his way because of his justice to come and to redeem and restore things back to their created purpose and order. Which is just fascinating. Now, Paul is going to drill down deep into, uh, with a list of different categories of individuals who are engaging in sinful patterns in the scriptures. And these are ones that are all consistently uh, taught on in the scriptures. And specifically, this is a hyperlink as well to the book of Leviticus to show examples of people who are living apart from God's desires for humanity, his commands for his people to live in. That they are not in right relationship with God or with others. So it continues in verse nine. Understanding this, the law is not for, laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. What a list. So here is Paul writing this letter to his disciple Timothy about some difficult realities. And let's be real, some of those are pretty controversial in our world right now. And some of these were controversial in his day too. I would imagine in each generation, any list in the scriptures of God's commands is going to have specific patterns because we live in a broken and fallen world, that there will be specific patterns of what the, of what the world around us calls good that are going to become more sensitive from any list. I mean, for example, in this exact same list, it's, he says, enslaver. Now, This is a sinful pattern that many during the transatlantic African slave trade would have probably preferred to be left off of this list, but that didn't make it any less sinful and broken. Now in our culture today, the two that are on this list that um, automatically probably perked your ears or when you read this letter a couple weeks ago, you're like, oh, let's see what they do with this one, um, are the the realities that have to do with the umbrella category of of human sexuality specifically mentions the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. Now, I realize how that lands in our cultural moment. 
especially in our context of where we're at geographically. So a few things to know. One, Paul was not singling out one sinful pattern in this list, but instead he provides this great diversity of realities that are consistently referred to as sinful in the scriptures and specifically are not only affected oneself, but the way one interacted in community with others around them. Every single one of these lists, look at them. Paul was also not blasting this on a blog that was meant to call out the culture around him specifically. He was writing to his disciple, Timothy, so that he could shepherd a church. The culture that Paul was caring about in this letter was the culture of a church where all kinds of false teaching had been occurring. Now for us, the consistent goal for any follower of Jesus is for each of us throughout the centuries to submit our understanding of what is good and bad to God. And that what he reveals within the scriptures over what our, our hearts and our minds might desire, what the world around us might say is good or bad. His point in listing out all of these things, it just shows the wide sweeping implications of God's justice. Which is why at the end of the list, he gives this, this beautiful catch-all phrase, right? And whatever else is contrary to, to sound doctrine. Like he's like, it's almost as if he's saying, you, you read over that list and none of those were your personal struggle. Cool. Anything else? Anything else? Any sinful pattern in your life? Any way that your life is not reflecting the glory of God? That too. That too. Nope. You are subject to God's justice just as anyone on this list. Now we look at this list and we're like, man, some of these just feel like they're like, if we're comparing which ones are worse, I mean, murder is kind of a big one up there, right? But Paul's point was he wasn't doing a comparative list. The only thing, the only good thing that he's comparing it to is God's glory, his desires, his, what he defines as good for flourishing in anything out of what God desires for flourishing is by definition, not within his desires, not what he calls good. Now, with all this in mind, this is not the passage to drill down into each part of this list. And by doing so, miss Paul's intent with what he's actually getting at in this passage. Even more, we have no desire as a church to call out in any reality and somehow label it a super sin. But what we do realize is that issues of human sexuality are at the forefront of our cultural moment that we live in right now. And the last thing we want to do is to not equip the saints on how to interact in this world and how to do this well and wisely and how to talk about these things with, with compassion and love, with grace and truth and how, what that means, what that looks like. So as a church, we are committed um, to, in, in the near future, having some type of forum realities for us to be able to engage uh, on uh, the topics of human sexuality holistically. So just so you know, that is a place that we will be moving into um, in, one, in one way or another. Um, we have a lot to work out logistically um, and content-wise on all of that. But I mention that particular caveat just for a, a moment so that we don't get distracted for the rest of the message now. And in doing so, miss out on what Paul's point is with this letter and what he's getting at in this, in this passage. Because see, God, God's justice is beyond our sense of justice. That's what Paul wants them to, this church to understand. What the law gives us clarity on is God's justice. And that's actually a good thing. See, it's a good thing that God cares about justice. 
that God doesn't just shrug his shoulders at evil and go, you do you. Oh, good. I can't imagine that any of us would look at the evils of like, let's say human trafficking and go, oh, I mean, that's there, right? Like, I'm just, yeah. you know, we'd go, no, that's wrong. Call it out. Let's go. It's good that God defines good and evil in his terms. Even when it, even especially when it disagrees with my definition. See, in real life, villains don't walk around saying, here's my evil plan, twisting their mustache or Loki with a scepter or something, right? See, in real life, villains believe and justify their plans to become good in their own eyes. I love that. I watch Disney Junior shows with Asher and they're always talking about like my evil plan. Like the villains talk like that. And you're like, nobody talks like that, right? My evil plan is that you're like green goblin, you're silly, you know? Um, Because you see, apart from Jesus, any individual, Paul, Timothy, you, me, are no better than the villain. And I can either say, I know better than God. Or I can assume that he knows better than I do. And when there is a disagreement, I need to come under what he says. So the law is good because it reveals God's justice. And the law also reveals our desperate need for a savior. It shows how desperate our position is for Jesus. Now, um, there's a recent study done by Lifeway that showed that the vast majority of individuals who um, call themselves a Christian uh, believe that, uh, that we are mostly good. It was exactly the way it was phrased. Now, I imagine even in this room, some of you might go, yeah, I totally agree with that. That on any given day, we're floating on between like 70 to 90% good. Um, but here's one of the problems with that. If we are 70, 90% good, then at best, the gospel isn't good news. It's necessary news. At best, the gospel is only necessary news. And here's why I say that. Because if we're 70, 90% good and we're like, I'm passing the test, but, like I, but, if, but if heaven's the A plus marker, then, then like Jesus, come and do that little saving thing because like he is perfect. I'm not quite perfect. But then because of what he did on the cross, then I become perfect. So then I can go to the land of perfection. If that's all the gospel is, it's not really good news. At best, it's necessary news because I want to go to the good place so I better believe in him so he makes me a little bit better. But see, this is where the law helps us out. It shows us that we're in desperate need. See, nobody who is honest with themselves looks in the scriptures at what God defines as good and bad and thinks, yeah, I'm doing totally awesome today. At best, at best, we look at, the, we look at the scriptures, we look at God's wisdom and we go, I'm better than that other person sitting in my row right now, right? Like at best, I'm better than somebody else. But here's the deal. Like, I'm gonna go ahead and assume all of you guys are better than I am because I imagine you all are. If, if you get 3% on the test of life and I get 1% on the test of life, your bragging rights over me are very minimal, Right? Like we all are flunking the test pretty epically. God isn't grading on the curve, right? He's not like, well, everyone, the highest anyone got is 4%. So 96% up, everyone move up, you know? See, we need God more than we could possibly fathom. In fact, the more we discover God's grace in Jesus, the more we discover how much more we need him than we all ever knew. 
You might have seen this tool before. It's called the cross chart. I think we have the graphic on it. Oh, we do. Sorry, it's not great quality. I, I sent it in late. Um, but you might have seen this before. But what it says is that across the course of time, at the moment of your conversion, we begin to follow after Jesus. You begin to grow with the implications of the gospel, that the gospel becomes beautiful in your life. But the gospel grows to be more beautiful and magnified in your life is you have a growing awareness of the bottom marker, growing awareness of my flesh and sinfulness, and a growing awareness of God's holiness. Now, why that matters? Because if we get stagnant in our belief about ourselves or about God, what happens is our sense of our sense of our need diminishes or at the very least it stagnates it just stays there but see the gospel is supposed to take us into a different place where we continually are discovering more and more of God's goodness and graciousness so it's not about discover how wretched you are so then you can just feel really bad about yourself or super guilty no, that's not the point The point is that as you discover how desperately you are in need of Jesus, and as you look up to Jesus and see his magnificent holiness and goodness, that the gratitude would expand in your heart and your desperation would take you to a place of going, Jesus, you have everything. And tomorrow you say even more. And the next day, even more. Are any of us going to do it consistently? No. But this is the long obedience in the same direction we've been talking about all summer. See, this is about growing in our awareness of who God is so that we'd cling desperately to Jesus like nobody's business. And as we meditate on the law, what happens after we come to know him is God's law sets a divine ideal for our flourishing so that we could know what does it look like for me to flourish in life with God and relationship with others. What is, how does God's desires impact my heart, my mind, my imagination be reoriented so that I can live a life that is infused with his kingdom ideals in the middle of a planet that is vastly imperfect. You might've heard this saying before, uh, but that Jesus meets us where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. I love that. I love the idea that, yeah, because it's true that, that in the middle of my brokenness, Jesus met me. But then He didn't just go, now you do you. Keep going after it. You're saved. He said, come with me. I have better. Come with me. I have more. Come with you. I want you to discover my love for you. Come with me. I want you to experience what life with me looks like. And this is awesome because how does Paul sign off that, this particular part? He says, he says, in all else that is contrary to sound doctrine. So he's connecting ethics, right living with sound doctrine, belief. See, belief and practice are intricately intertwined. What we believe literally helps re, what we truly believe helps rewire the synapses of our brain so that as we journey with Jesus, the way that we live in love with others would grow to become more and more like Jesus. And what the law does, it doesn't give us necessarily a yes or no on every single decision we make in life, but it gives us the framework, the wisdom and the guidance so that we could be steered in any situation into what does it look like to love God and to love people in this moment? And how is that in reference to what the scriptures say about things like this? Principles, what does that mean for this one? 
Which is why Paul then goes to, in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. See, the gospel has enamored Paul and that's where he's about to go. But do you see where the false teachers are being so wrong? They've been doing like the opposite of all this stuff. They were polluting the waters. And in doing so, they were giving God's truth a bad reputation. Now, Paul is going to get very personal now, verse 12 through 16. I'll read it briefly. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is Paul writing about himself because he judged me faithful. Now that sounds a little arrogant himself, right? Like, oh, Paul, you think you're so faithful, right? Appointing me to his service. Oh, God must really needed Paul. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I was awesome. No, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul's getting really personal here. And remember the context again, we have, he's dialoguing about these false teachers and he's about to go even deeper into the realities of these false teachers. But he doesn't want Timothy or anyone else to think that that's because he's, he's up here on the hill of perfection and everyone else is just an idiot. Paul thought, Paul thought that he was living in accordance with the law. He was arrogant, ignorant, defined. But God revealed to him that he was actually an insolent opponent, that he was an enemy of God, that he was subject to God's wrath and justice. And therefore, he was in a desperate position, need. But by God's grace and mercy, he was restored to flourish in newness of life and given ministry. In other words, Paul's saying, I was just like these false teachers and all those who willfully and ignorantly rebel against God's desires. But then I met Jesus. And I discovered better in him. See, he has just pointed out a bunch of people, that list, all these people who are not living outright relationship with God or with people. And then he uses this word, and I'm the foremost. The foremost, the worst. I love that. I love that. Not because he is the worst. I'll take him at his word. He's the worst, okay? But... But because what I have experienced is I have been around godly men and women who have journeyed within the faith with Jesus is the ones who are filled with humility and wisdom and love are the ones who you ask, who's the biggest sinner in any room you're in? And they would always say me. I've discovered more and more of my desperate need for Jesus and by his grace and by his mercy, I have been redeemed to where I am today. I thought I knew him five years ago and my desperate need then, no, 10, no, 20, no. Like I need him more now than I did when I first believed. And that's Paul. 
And Paul's saying, if there is a scale of sinfulness, I am at the deep end apart from Jesus. Like I killed Christians and there weren't a lot of them in those early days and I was going after them. Now you might sit in a position and you might think, I'm way too far away from God's grace. I've gone beyond the reach of it. Or you might think, they, they have gone beyond the reach of his grace for sure. You might think, I'm too broken. You might think, they're too broken. But if you've ever believed you're the worst, you're in good company because Paul says the same about himself. He says he's the foremost and look what he's received. Mercy and grace beyond measure. Not so that he can perpetually continue in and he's like, he's like, oh oh my gosh, your grace is upon me. Okay, cool. I was gonna go kill some Christians. I'm gonna keep going after it now. No, like it's not about, it's not, oh, I was rebelling. Now you've restored me. So now I can continue rebelling. It's, whoa, I'm free. I'm free. I think about, a decade ago when I first began to follow after Jesus and he saved me, I knew in that moment how desperately I needed his savior. I knew how broken I was. I knew where my best was getting me and I needed him more than I knew. I had no clue. Now I know. Now I know. When I have conversations with you, I know how much I need his grace. When I have conversations with Allie or with the kids, I realize more and more how desperately I need Jesus. And between me and you, I think I'm just crossing the surface. See, Jesus, though, Jesus didn't come for the just. What did Paul say here? Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners. He didn't come for the just. He came for the persecutors, the insolent opponents. He came for the same people that the law is for. Which means I actually have a little list here about the type of people that Jesus desires to save. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers and whatever else is contrary to false doctrine, to sound doctrine. Are you on that list? If you're not in any of the name things, I bet you in there in the last one. Me too. Praise you to God. This is what he is up to. He is about redeeming and restoring so that we could experience his goodness. The, see, the law really is good, I promise It reveals that God is just, that we desperately need him more than we know, and that when we do meet Jesus, we are given new life and new strength to follow and to live in his wisdom, to live in his love, to hear his voice and obey. So that in our lives, Jesus gets all the praise and the honor and the glory forever and ever. It kind of sounds like where Paul goes in where we'll end tonight, to the king of the ages. Immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
It's like Paul has just recounted his testimony and then has to like press pause really quick. Like he's been, remember, still writing about false teachers. And then he recounts his story with Jesus and all he can do is break out into poetry. Have you ever heard uh, this phrase, uh, poetry is putting feelings to words? Like that's poetry. It's when, when, when just regular words aren't gonna do the trick. And Paul's not just expressing concepts. He's not going, well, theologically, I believe that God is invisible. The only God. Yep, he's that one too. He's the king of the ages, in fact. Like he's not bored. He is enamored by Jesus. He is so grateful for God's mercy in his life that, that it's leading him to deep praise and joy. What else can he do? I mean, throughout the scriptures, you'll see whenever poetry comes into play, it's in moments of deep emotion. Starting with Adam, when he sees Eve for the first time, he says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. What? And in moments of deep grief in the Psalms, you turn to poetry. And for Paul, right here, that's where he's sitting. I'll end with this story. Jonathan Edwards uh, was a, uh, you may have never heard that name before, but he was a pastor um, who was a part of God's movement that is known as the First Great Awakening in um, the American colonies. It was about 40 years before uh, the um, American Revolution. And when he was a kid, he was wrestling with the supremacy of God over all things. In other words, he was wrestling with this stuff right here. He didn't like the thought. In fact, it was abhorrent to him. And then he was reading in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, this poem. And this is what he would write about it later. As I read the words, there came into my soul a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense quite different from anything I've ever experienced before. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I, if I might enjoy that God, be wrapped up in him in heaven and be as if it were swallowed up in him forever. This is our God. He is fully good and fully great. Isn't that crazy? He's the king of the ages, immortal, Invisible, the only God worthy of the praise and the glory and the honor. He is just and loving and kind and good. He's a really good king, guys, I promise. He's been doing it for a while. But even more meaningful to me personally is that he's a really good dad. See, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy so that this church would be reminded of how desperately they need to cling to the love of their dad marked by grace and truth, that they can be drawn near to Jesus and keep the aim of love with a pure conscience and a sincere faith. Now I realize within us, many of us have experienced others. And if you're like me yourself, misuse the law of God, altering it to match our beliefs rather than allowing the scriptures to alter our beliefs. But if you get nothing else, know this. We can trust what God defines as good because he is good. What if this was the way that we lived? What if this is the way that we represented Jesus to the world? Not just as individuals bent on proving our rightness or correcting other people's beliefs, but as followers of Jesus, we are living out what does it mean to love God and love people in the midst of a broken world? 
That when we interact one another, it doesn't mean that we forsake grace or we forsake truth in the cause of love. It's that as we progress in life, we would genuinely love the way that God loves in grace and truth. Because there's a watching world who wants to know what true love is like. What is this divine biblical love that we see in the scriptures? Would you pray with me? I confess, Father, that so often in my story, I have desired what I want to believe is good and bad over where you're at, what your wisdom would say, what your commands are. Lord, I I ask for myself and for each of us that are here tonight who know you, that you would be working transformatively in our hearts. I pray for any of us who are here tonight who as we're talking and hearing about God's grace and about Jesus and the cross and what he did on the cross, dying for our sins so that we could be redeemed and restored. And for any of us here that are still unsure about that or we don't even know what that means or what that looks like or we have questions or we're ready to surrender our lives to you, Lord, that you would be working through the power of your spirit to, to lift the veil over those eyes tonight that for those who are here who have experienced the misuse of the law and by virtue of the fact that all of us have lived on this earth, it means probably all of us. Would you help us in spaces of unforgiveness, hard-heartedness, that you would would give us hearts of flesh, not hearts of stone, that we'd be redeemed and restored to you and that we'd be able to love you and love people well. Help us, Lord, because we live in a world that has a radically different version of what is good and bad than what, you're, what you've said. And that's been the case literally since, since Genesis 3 till now. So I know that none of this catches you off guard or by surprise. So would you do your work in our hearts tonight? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.